also want to say something about chapter 23. We're starting to transition. <laughs> we're starting to transition from the life of Abraham and things start to happen quickly at the end of chapter 22. Because in chapter 23, Sarah dies. Yes, Sarah, who's been with us for the last number of lessons, she dies. And chapter 23 focuses on Abraham obtaining a burial ground, purchasing a burial ground from the Canaanites so that he can bury Sarah. If we skip over chapter 24 for a second and just look at the beginning of chapter 25, if you just scan the first 11 verses of chapter 25, you'll see that we have two events recorded for us in this passage, or at the beginning of this passage. We have Abraham's new marriage. Yes, Abraham does get remarried after Sarah's death. And we also are told about the death of Abraham. So like I say, we're transitioning out of the life of the first patriarch. Sarah dies, Abraham dies, but Abraham, before he dies, he hears about his relatives having kids. And that's important because what does Isaac need? Isaac needs a bride. So this is Moses by the Spirit of God, moving us from the life of Abraham to the life of Isaac. And chapter 24, in many ways, represents a transition chapter. Now, can we be specific? Can we be more specific about the timing of Genesis 24? Well, in fact, we can. And that's what I want to walk you through now. Like a true historian, Moses has once again left us a number of specific time details so we know, and Israel would know, exactly where they were in the chronology of the world. Here are a couple of questions that will focus us on the time details. How old was Isaac at the time of his mother's death? We actually get this information. If we go back to Genesis 1717, this is when God was announcing the birth of Isaac, part of his one part of his announcements, because he does it multiple times. Genesis 1717 says, And Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So how old was she when she bore Isaac? 90. Now, Genesis 23, Genesis 23, verses 1 to 2, talks about Sarah's age at her death. Genesis 23, 1 to 2 says, Now Sarah lived 127 years. These are the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So if Sarah was 90 when she had Isaac and died at 127, how old was Isaac when Sarah died? I always get in trouble when I try and do math in our Sunday school class, but I believe the answer is 37 years old, right? 127 minus 90. Isaac would have been 37 when his mother died. Now, hold it. how old is Isaac when he gets married? We get this detail as well in Genesis 25.20. Genesis 25.20 says, And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So then, Isaac's marriage takes place about three years after his mother's death, when Isaac is 40. Now, how long would it be until Isaac and Rebekah would have children? Moses tells us this as well. Genesis 25, 26. Genesis 25, 26, it says, Afterward, his brother, 
came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when he gave birth to them. Interesting. How long was it before Rebekah bore children to Isaac? 20 years. He gets married at 40, has Jacob and Esau when he's 60, so 20 years went by. Now, as you can see, that's kind of a long time. And this problem, this trial of barrenness and infertility, it wasn't just a problem for Abraham and Sarah. It actually proved to be somewhat of a problem for Isaac and Rebekah. And it's going to come back, even with Jacob and Rachel. Is this all a big coincidence? No, of course not. This is our sovereign, good, wise God providentially working in the lives of the patriarchs, even the life of Isaac and the life of Rebekah, just as he did with Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah would pray to the Lord about obtaining a child. And remember, they too had the promises of a seed, the, the wonderful promises given to Abraham, and yet they didn't see it right away. It's because God was working in their lives. He was refining them so that they too would be people of faith. Now, just another little time thing. How old was Abraham when Jacob and Esau were born? Actually, he was still alive at that time because we hear later on in chapter 25 that Abraham died at 175. And if Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born and Isaac has kids at 60, then that means that Abraham was 160 years old when Jacob and Esau were born. He was still alive. So he got to see the next generation even after Isaac and saw these two, these, two, these two babies grow up into young men. It's just as the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham didn't totally obtain the promises, but he saw them from a far distance and he welcomed them. He was seeing the beginning of the Lord's purposes and even the Lord's specific promises to Abraham being worked out. He saw it in Isaac and he saw it even in the birth of Jacob. So this gives us a little bit more context. And if we combine this information from what are with the time information given in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, remember those unique chrono genealogies that Moses gives us, we can roughly place all of, all of these events, or particular events of Genesis 24, around 1915 BC. Because if we use Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, and we don't infer gaps, which I've argued with I've argued in this class that we shouldn't infer gaps in those genealogies. That gives a creation date of about 4,000 BC. And based on a number of calculations from that, we would have the marriage of Isaac to Rebecca around 1915 BC. So again, you see, you can see that Moses is very conscious about giving time details because this is true history. And he wanted the people of Israel to know when these things were taking place, and where their own lives were taking place in the timeline of the world. And that's helpful for us, even in the modern day. Okay, so we've got some context, but now let's actually get to our main passage. So if you haven't yet, turn to Genesis 24. It's a big chapter. We won't read every verse, but we will read a good chunk of it, and I'll summarize some of the other parts. Of course, in any big passage, we can't observe everything. In fact, even though I'm trying to model observation, interpretation, application in class, there's so much more that we could observe and talk about than we have time in one hour each Sunday morning. 
but I'm trying to highlight for you the key details and give you a sense of what the process of Bible interpretation looks like. That three-step method, inductive Bible study, observe, just look for the basic details, interpret, ask questions based on what you observe, and then apply. Based on what you interpret, ask yourself, how does it work out in your life? But before we can do any of that, we have to actually read the text. So let's do that. We're going to start with just Genesis 24, verses 1 to 8. Genesis 24, 1 to 8. How long will please as I read? Now Abraham was old, advanced in age. And the Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh. And I will make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife from my son among and take a wife from my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, be aware that you do not take my son back there. Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Okay, this first part here. We've got two people, Abraham and an unnamed servant. Now, it's interesting that this servant, who's kind of an important character in this passage, he never gets a name. And even though he doesn't have a name, we do get some important details about him. Notice that he is the oldest of Abraham's household, the oldest servant there, the most experienced and most trusted. He had charge of all that Abraham owned. This isn't the first time that Abraham's top servant is mentioned in the Bible. If we go back to Genesis 15, 2, before Isaac is born, Abraham confesses to God that his heir is someone of his own household, Eliezer of Damascus. This is someone not of Abraham's bloodline. What's that all about? Well, in those days, if you had no children, you still had to pass your stuff along to somebody. And so it would be the oldest, most trusted, most experienced servant in your household. So likely Eliezer of Damascus was Abraham's top servant. And if Eliezer had not died between Genesis 15 and Genesis 24, then this would be that same servant. But if he had, this would be the, the next top servant in Abraham's household. Either way, Kind of interesting to note that if Isaac were not to inherit all that belonged to Abraham, to whom would it go? Well, namely this servant. But Abraham commissions this servant to act on behalf of Isaac. And if the servant is successful, then that forever precludes the servant from getting any of what Abraham would pass on. Nevertheless, Abraham entrusts the servant with this mission. Now, Abraham tells the servant to place the servant's hand under Abraham's thigh. Ooh, that sounds a little weird. What's going on with that? 
Well, the context should help us understand basically what is a ritual here. This act of placing his one's hand under his thigh, what must it mean? It must have something to do with seriousness, sobriety, solemnness. And we can tell this because of the other details here in the passage. Abraham makes him swear an oath while his hand is placed there. And the oath is not just any oath. The object of the oath is Yahweh himself. His name is invoked, and Yahweh's name is not to be trifled with. Of course, the area under one's thigh is a very private, intimate area, so this is serious. Now, we don't quite have a custom like this today, I'd say, thankfully. A somewhat similar custom would be something like swearing on the Bible, though even that is something that people don't really do anymore. It's the idea that you're, you're showing, as you swear, that you are extremely serious. You recognize the importance of what you're swearing to. Abraham is sending his servant on a very serious mission, and he wants his servant to swear by the God of heaven and the God of earth to obey and to be careful to fulfill all that Abraham tells him to do. Now notice the specific charges Abraham gives to his servant. He first says, you must not do something. What must the servant not do? Do not, Abraham says, take a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites, among the people who live around Abraham. Instead, Abraham says, go to my relatives in my former country and take a wife from among my relatives. Now look down at verse 10 for just a second. We'll read this verse in a little bit. Where is it that Abraham's relatives live? In Nahor, the town of Nahor in Mesopotamia. Don't know exactly where that is, but based on the travel of Abraham's family before, it's likely that Nahor is close to the city of Haran, where Abraham stopped along with his father on the way from Ur, the Chaldeans, on the way to Canaan. So likely Nahor is in northwest Mesopotamia. This would have been a long way from where Abraham is currently living, about 400 or 500 miles one way, or a round trip would be about 800 to 1,000 miles. That's roughly the distance between New York City and Columbus, Ohio. That's even a long trip by today's standards, and we go by car. But back then, of course, they didn't have cars. They were using camels or other animals or just their own feet. So this would be a long way to go, and it would take some time. Nevertheless, this is the charge Abraham gives to his servant. The servant, however, anticipates a potential problem with this trip. He says, well, there's something that might happen. The woman might not want to come back with me. And we can see why <laughs> it's a long way, especially for someone that she doesn't know that well and to marry a man whom she's never met. What might the interested woman, if she is indeed interested, what might she suggest instead of traveling all the way to Canaan to meet and marry this husband? Why don't you bring him here? Let me get a good look at him. Let me talk to him myself. So the servant asks, should I take your son with me to this land? Abraham's reaction is quite poignant. How would you characterize that reaction? Absolutely not. Emphatic no. Do not take my son back there. Beware you do not do that. That at all costs, do not take my son back to Mesopotamia. And Abraham says two things to reassure his servant. 
It says, God previously called me to separate from my relatives and to come to this land to be blessed here. He will send my angel or he will send his angel before you to grant success. And if she refuses to come back, you're free from my oath and your mission is over. So with this reassurance, the servant places his hand under Abraham's thigh and swears to do just as Abraham commanded. Let's pause here and ask just a few interpretation questions before we go on. Why doesn't Abraham want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman? What do you think? Okay, that would certainly seem to be part of it. The Canaanites generally are not Yahweh followers. They are pagan and they do abominable things. And we're going to see later on in the law of Moses that God specifically forbids any intermarriage of the people of Israel with the idolatrous people of the land. Now, there are some exceptions to this. When some of those people do genuinely trust Yahweh, they are permitted to be part of Israel. We see this with Rahab, the Canaanite. And we see this with Ruth, the Moabite. They become part of the people of God and true Yahweh followers. But God did forbid Israel. And even today in the New Testament, we are forbid from marrying those who do not truly follow Yahweh, not truly follow God. But that's not the only thing at play here. Likely Abraham is thinking about, okay, is this bride going to be idolatrous? Canaanites are idolatrous around me generally. So do not take a wife from them. What would be another important reason, though, for not taking a wife from the Canaanites? Yes, Mark. Okay, right. So I think that's part of it. Though, like we said, some of the Canaanites who, who did follow Yah, or like Rahab, they would be permitted to live in the land. But generally, these are the people who are going to be driven out of the land. And I think you're, you're really getting to something, which is what I was also getting to. There's a difference between who's going to inherit the blessings of Abraham and the land when it comes to Abraham and the Canaanites. The Canaanites can be driven out. The land is given to Abraham and his seed. So if the son of Abraham marries a descendant of the land, then we've got a confusion here. Who, who's supposed to obtain the land? Is it the Canaanites or is it Abraham's seed? If they mix together, isn't it kind of both? Abraham's aware. These covenant promises are to my seed not to the people of the land. So he doesn't want any confusion. God does not want any confusion between to whom the promises really belong. And remember, we saw this concept when it came to the separation of Abraham and his nephew Lot. It's important that Lot separated from Abraham because the promises were not given to Lot. Though Lot was blessed because of God's promises to Abraham, the promises weren't to him. They were to Abraham's chosen seed. So in the same way, it's important that the bride of Isaac not be a Canaanite because the promises are not meant for them. So we know at least these two factors are at play just by inference that the text is not explicit about why he says this, though it is quite clear that he is determined to have a wife from among his own relatives. Another question to ask is, why must Isaac not go? Why can't he go call a bride out from Mesopotamia. Why send the servant? I mean, it's notable that Abraham himself doesn't go. I mean, Abraham is getting older, but he's still going to live at least another 30 years after this. He's not infirm, as far as we can tell. So why, why does he say so adamantly, Isaac must not go? 
What do you think? I think we get an idea based on the explanation that Abraham gives. Right after he says, be sure you do not take my son back there. He then rehearses some of the promises that God gave him. And what were those promises? Separate from your relatives. Separate from your country. And go to the country that I will show you. Go to the land that I will show you. Abraham is aware that God called him out of that land to Canaan. To stay there and to receive the promises. To send Isaac all the way back to Mesopotamia is a step backwards. No, this is the land. This is the land of, of receiving blessing. And besides, if he goes back there, he might be tempted to stay there. You might notice Jacob, later on, the chosen seed from Isaac, he is also going to journey to this land. Or he, he's also going to have interaction with this land, but he's going to go there himself. And he's going to stay there a long time. In fact, he would probably have stayed there, maybe permanently. After all, he didn't want to come back to the land to, to deal with Esau. But it was only because things got so tumultuous in Laban's household that, Jake, that Jacob and his wives were forced to leave Haran. There's a good chance, just humanly speaking, that if Isaac went, he might not come back. And Abraham says, don't let that happen. I don't want that even to be a temptation. This is the land of promise. This is the land that God has... God has ordained for which we will receive blessing. Promises are associated with this land. Don't take Isaac with you. Bring her back. And maybe that seems unusual, servant, but Yahweh's angel will go before you, and he'll make this come to pass. We're going to see this theme, actually, as we go through the Old Testament, of Canaan being the land of blessing and being driven out of Canaan that is a sign of God's disfavor, and that's actually going to be the ultimate outcome of the people of Israel. And it's, I think, significant, even in the promises for the last days, when God does establish his kingdom on earth, what does he say? He says, my people, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back to the land of promise. I'm going to bring you back to the land of blessing, because that's where I'm going to be. All right, let's move on in this chapter. We'll just look at the next section now, verses 10 to 14. See what happens as the servant makes the journey and arrives in the town. Look along with me in verse 10. Then the servant took 10 camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of goods, or good things of his masters in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, now water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Now, we're going to pause right here and make some more observations. The servant and his entourage, we're going to see that he has other men with him. They arrive outside the city of Nahor and Mesopotamia. 
It's been a long journey. It's toward evening time. And the servant takes a moment to pray to Yahweh. Notice for what he asks, he asks for success on this mission to which Abraham has given him. And he comes up with a certain plan and he incorporates it in his prayer to God. Notice how he asks God to point out the right woman. The one who offers the servant a drink and who offers to water his camels, let her be the one. Now, normally, apart from God's intervention, how likely was it that a woman would respond in this way? Probably unlikely. Why? Because it's a lot of work. I mean, a woman might permit a drink, just out of simple politeness, if it's just for the man himself. Oh, I'm thirsty. Could you give me a drink? All right, fine. Here's a drink. I mean, it's not too much water. The spring's right there. The politeness wouldn't cost too much. Boy, what about watering 10 camels? 10 camels who've just been on a long journey. Camels could drink a lot. That means a lot of going to the well or to the spring, drawing the water, taking it, carrying it, and emptying it into, some, into a trough for the camels to drink. That's not something that could be done quickly. That's going to take a lot of time. That's going to take a lot of sweat. And she doesn't even know this guy. So there's therefore a little chance the average woman would agree to, much less offer to without prompting to fulfill this kind of desire. But what kind of woman might do that? What kind of character would she have to have if she would do that? She would have to be a hospitable, compassionate one, a hardworking one. That kind of woman would make a good wife. So the servant, for his own reason, he asked God to point out the woman that Isaac should marry by having this woman display an extravagant and rare generosity to him, a stranger. Now, is this the only way that a servant could identify, or the only way that the servant could identify the wife that Isaac needs? No. In fact, Abraham's directions did not include this. His directions were merely to go to his relatives. The servant could have asked around the city, say, hey, do you know the house of Nahor? Do you know the house of Bethuel? I'm trying to find them. And they could direct him to the dwelling place. You can meet the family and see if there are any unmarried daughters. That would have been a much more normal and perhaps practical way to fulfill his mission. So why does the servant do this then? Why does the servant ask for God to do something extraordinary beyond what is normal? I believe the key is in the servant's prayer itself. Notice how the servant ends his prayer. He says, by this, by this thing I'm asking you, what will I know? I will see that you have shown loving kindness to my master. I will know that this is your loving kindness to my master. I mean, Abraham did tell his servant, Yahweh will send his angel before you. So based on that promise, the servant says, or really, the servant asked God for something special. I'll paraphrase. If you will it, God, do something unexpected 
to confirm your loving kindness, your chesed, your covenant love, your faithful love to Abraham. May it be that even as I speak to a woman at the spring, let her be the one, let her be the one who shows such great hospitality and let her be the relative that I was sent to get. Now, as we'll see later on in the passage, the servant is ready for God not to answer this prayer. He's ready to go a more practical route. But by praying this way, the servant gives God the opportunity to give himself glory and to show his faithful love to Abraham, to show his ability and his commitment to keeping his promises to bless and provide for Abraham. So he makes this prayer. How does God respond? Well, let's look at verses 15 to 27. Follow along with me as I read more. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bathuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw. And she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether Yahweh had made his journey successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten, 10 shekels in gold and said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and seed and room to lodge in. And the man bowed low and worshipped Yahweh. He said, blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, Yahweh has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. All right, this is amazing. Let's stop and make some more observations. How quickly does God answer the servant's prayer? I'd say pretty quickly, before he even finished speaking, before he even finished speaking in his heart. Rebecca does exactly as the servant prayed. She gives him a drink and then offers to water all his camels. And did you notice how she did it? What stands out about the way she did it? She was fast. She was quick about it. It says she quickly lowered her jar. She quickly emptied it into the trough. She ran back to get more water. This is not half-hearted generosity. This is not, oh, you know, I know the custom is, let's be hospitable. All right, let me do this. No, this is full effort. And notice verse 16 says she went down to the spring and then came up. That's interesting. Down to, came up. What does that imply about the location of the spring? It's at a lower elevation. It's somehow lower than where the servant is. 
So probably she has to go downhill or down a set of stairs to reach this spring or reach this well and then ascend the same way. So not only is she running and moving quickly, but she's doing incline and decline work while holding a huge jar full of water. So not only is this woman generous, but she is hardworking and probably physically fit. I don't know if I could do this. What's the servant doing while all this is happening? Watching in silence, wondering if this is God's answer to his prayer. And that's a little bit interesting, right? It doesn't say, oh, she said what I was looking for. This must be God's will. I prayed for it, and here it is. Now, he can't say that yet, because what doesn't he know? What doesn't he know right away? I'm not sure she's Abraham's relative. I'm not just looking for the sign of what she says. She's got to be the right lineage. So he watches, though in amazement. After she does this great act of hospitality, he gives her a ring, and we learn later on in the passage it's a nose ring. Gives her a ring, and he gives her two gold bracelets, and he asks her two questions. What's your family, and is there place, is there provision for lodging at your father's house? And lo and behold, she, she reveals that she is Abraham's relative. Not only do they have lodging for the men with the servant, but they have food and places for the animals. And all this, without her knowing precisely who this servant is. So how does the servant respond to this final statement from her? He bows low and he worships Yahweh. He pronounces a blessing on God. He confirms that God has answered his prayer. He's shown loving kindness to Abraham because he's brought the servant to exactly the right woman. And what a woman. Consider what we've learned about her just in this passage that makes her seem like a great bride for Isaac. She's hardworking. She's generous and hospitable. She's strong. She's of the right household. She's very beautiful. She's a young maiden of marriageable age. She's still unmarried, and she's a virgin. I mean, what more could you ask? She sounds actually a lot like the Proverbs 31 woman. The servant couldn't have found a better bride for Isaac. Is this all, again, just a really fortunate coincidence? No. This is as the servant says. This is the covenant kindness of God on display toward Abraham and toward Abraham's seed. And isn't this exactly what God promised? This is God fulfilling his word. Keeping covenant. So what happens next? I'm actually going to skip the next 30 verses or so. I'll just summarize it for you. Now that Rebecca knows who this servant is and that he serves her kinsmen, she runs back to tell her family. Laban, her brother, he then runs out and he continues the outstanding hospitality of the household. He urges the servant and his men to come and lodge with them. The group goes to the house. All 10 animals are provided for. A meal is set before the servant and the other men. But the servant refuses to eat. He refuses to eat until he explains his mission. He relates to the family, Abraham's situation, how God blessed Abraham, and all that transpired in Abraham sending the servant to find a wife, and the servant's prayer about discerning who this wife is and how Rebekah fulfilled that prayer. The servant then asks if he might be allowed to take Rebekah back all the way to Canaan as a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. After hearing all this, the family confesses that what has happened is from Yahweh, and they consent. At this, the servant again bows and worships God. 
servant then unloads a caravan of camels and he gives various treasures to the family. In other words, he pays the bride price. Now, what's a bride price? Well, in those days, losing a family member due to marriage was really losing a part of the family's workforce, family's income. It was customary for the husband's family to pay money or give gifts to offset the financial loss of the young woman. Abraham's servant therefore gives gifts to Rebecca's family, articles of silver, articles of gold, precious garments, other objects. And this would be a very happy time for the household of Bethuel. Rebecca has just secured a great marriage with a wealthy man and a kinsman. This is not just some rando. No, this is somebody that the family knows. The family of Bethuel has been handsomely compensated. But then next morning, servant says he wants to depart with Rebecca. Family had not expected such a quick departure. I mean, they're probably never going to see Rebecca again. And no doubt they had some celebration plans. They asked for 10 more days with Rebecca. But the servant, ever committed to his master's will and not his own, he requests that his God-blessed mission not be slowed down. So the family decides to ask Rebecca what she wants. And so they do. And she says that she's ready to leave now, even right away, to go to Canaan. So the family blesses her, and they send her on the 500-mile trip back with a nurse and a number of other maids. Caravan sets out, and we see their arrival recorded in the last verses of the chapter. Look at verses 62 to 67. We'll read and briefly comment on these. Now Isaac had come from going to Bear Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Really, this is quite amazing. It's like a Disney princess story, isn't it? Just a hardworking, beautiful girl living with her family, doing normal everyday tasks. Suddenly a servant arrives and tells her that a rich prince wants her to be his bride. Let's ask a few more interpretation questions. The first is the most important. What's the point of this passage? What's the point of this account? I mean, it is interesting and all, but why did Moses write this and include this in Genesis? I think, again, the servant clues this in on the main point. What's the truth that's highlighted here? This is how God determined to show loving kindness to Abraham. All this was written down for Israel and for us so we understand more about the kind of covenant-keeping God that we have. Look at how he keeps his promises. Look at the way he shows care for those in covenant with him. He provided Abraham with a servant who delighted to do his master's will and sought his master's benefit with no thought to himself, even to the point of doing something for his master that would mean that 
the servant would lose out. The servant would never get the inheritance. It would go to the master's son, but he was glad to do it. God provided that kind of servant. God also provided an exceptional wife for his son. And it arranged circumstances in such a way that not only was this wife available, but she was ready and willing to come to Canaan. This is God's handiwork. This is indeed the loving kindness of God. Now, why, why would this have been such a relevant message to the people of Israel as they go into the land of promise themselves? What do you think? Can you say that again, please? Mm. That's right. And so why would that be relevant to the people of Israel as they go into the land? I mean, they don't have the exact same situation, but they do have the same God. They do have a God who needs to keep his promises to them. And so as they see God being faithful to Abraham and to Isaac, they can be more confident that God will be faithful to them. They'd be encouraged to believe the Lord's promises. They'd be encouraged to obey God. They'd be encouraged to trust God. I mean, they faced many unknowns, just as Abraham did. But, you know, interestingly, the same phrase is used of Israel as is used for Abraham's servant. God tells Israel later on, Yahweh will send his angel before you. He will drive out the people of the land. He will grant you victory. It's the same language used to describe, that Abraham uses to describe what happens to a serpent. God will send his angel before you, and he will grant you success. Why? Because this is the covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises. And, of course, this is important for Israel, but it's important for us, too. I mean, let's think about our own lives. Perhaps, and this is always true, perhaps you're wondering if you if God will keep his promises to you. You're wondering if whether you should really obey God, whether you should really adjust your life to be more in conformity to God, because you're wondering, well, will God come through? Will God really give me what he promises? Can I trust God to be good to me if I follow him? Will he give me what I need? Will he provide my daily bread? Will he help me endure through the hard times? Will he help me endure suffering and trial and temptation and persecution? Will he even provide me with a spouse? The message of God through Moses to you, to me, is you can trust God. He's in total control of everything. He knows your needs. He delights to do you good. Look at how he provided for Abraham and for Isaac. Extravagant loving kindness. The same God, if you truly know him through Christ, he's covenanted with you to show you everlasting kindness. So don't doubt his love. Don't doubt his wisdom. Don't doubt his ability. Believe and watch how the Lord provides. Now, of course, the Lord will allow difficulties in your life. We need those difficulties to refine us and to show us what is true treasure. And God will not provide for you the exact same way he provides for someone else, even as Abraham and Isaac here. God does something unique with each person. But though the means are different in each person's life, 
God's faithfulness, his power, his love, his wisdom, they're always the same. So we can believe the promises of scripture like Psalm 84.11. I quoted this in class before, but Psalm 84.11 says, For Yahweh God is a sun and shield. Yahweh gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's you if you know Christ. And Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. Again, that's you if you know Christ. God is a God of covenant, love, and kindness. If you've been brought into his covenant by Christ's saving grace, nothing of your own, just God's goodness to you in Christ, then you are an object of God's constant, unfailing covenant kindness. So let that truth be a fortress to you when your flesh, the world, the devil, try and tell you otherwise. Now, don't miss out on another aspect of this text. What allowed God to show his kindness in an astounding way? The servant's prayer. I mean, it still would have been on display even if the servant hadn't prayed. But because the servant asked for something extraordinary, God was able, God saw fit to do the extraordinary. And do you want to see that kind of work of God in your life? then you should pray. We know the scripture constantly commands us to prayer. It's one of those commands where we're, we're given so many assurances and so many blessings if we, will, if we will but pray. But it's one of the last things that we want to do. That's the flesh. That's the world. That's Satan working against us. We should pray because God then sees fit to work in an astounding way. Again, not necessarily exactly the same as he did with Abraham and Isaac. But when you pray, it gives him glory. And God often chooses to act in a glorious way in response to your prayer. One final question, somewhat related to what we're saying. Should we pray for specific signs of God's choice, like Abraham's servant did? We say, God, I'm not sure who to marry. I need you to show me, God. Or God, I'm not sure what I should do here. I need you to make your will clear to me. I need you to give me a sign. Should we pray that way? Well, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Some ways, the answer is yes. We know James 1 says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And he gives generously and without reproach. Do we need wisdom? Wisdom to understand our situation? Wisdom to act godly in life? We do. We need wisdom to discern for example, who is the right person to marry, or what's the right job to pursue, or where I should live, or what church should I be part of? And it's good to pray to God about this, but understand what you're praying for. You're praying for, let's say, in the instance of a spouse, you're praying that you might discern evidence of that person's character. You're praying that you might be able to apply wisely and rightly the principles of Scripture about the kind of wife or the kind of husband you should marry. Look and see if they really line up with what the scripture says. Because I think the thing we want to stay away from when we pray, we should not look for a miraculous or seemingly miraculous sign to know God's will. Remember the difference between descriptive and prescriptive writing in the Bible. Descriptive just tells you what happened. Prescriptive tells you what you should do. 
just because someone righteous does something in the Bible doesn't mean that you're going to do the exact same thing. God was doing something special with Abraham, his servant, and Rebekah. God even foretold specifically, or through Abraham, that the angel was going ahead of Abraham's servant to accomplish something special. We should not expect God to be working the exact same way for us today. As I've said in other classes, God has never promised to speak to us through circumstances, through vague feelings, through dreams, through visions, through new prophecy. All of these are highly interpretive, ultimately unverifiable. Moreover, the work of giving and validating new revelation, it has finished for this age. The apostles, or the foundation of the apostles and prophets has been laid, Ephesians 2.20. The church is being built on that. The revelation, God's revelation for this age has culminated in Christ. His apostles explained it. There's nothing more to add. God does speak to us today, but it's through his word. It's through the scriptures. So if you want to know God's will, even about what we think of as maybe not completely straightforward moral issues today, whom should I marry? What profession should I pursue? What church should I attend? Where should I live? Whatever it is, you need to listen to God's word. Pray for understanding of God's word. Talk with others who can help you understand and live out God's word. And then apply the Bible's principles. You know, a scripture I often refer back to is Deuteronomy 29, 29. So I think it really sums up this principle. The secret things, Moses says, belong to the Lord. But the things revealed, they belong to us and to our children, that we may entirely keep this law. God spoke that through Moses to Israel, but the principle really applies to us as well. We should not be looking for the mysterious, secret, sovereign will of God and ask for some sort of sign for God to point it out. No, God's sovereign will is going to happen no matter what. But what has God told you to pay attention to? What has God told me to pay attention to? To what he revealed? Because what is the Bible? It's God's will for you. That's one way of looking at it. God tells you what he wants, what he desires, what he commands. He says, live this way, act this way, think this way, believe this way. You say, God, I, I just want to know what you want in my life. God says, look to my word. I've told you there. But you say, oh, but that's not specific enough. God says, the principles are there. Many things are addressed specifically, but otherwise the principles are there. Pay attention to what is revealed. Don't worry about the secret things. That belongs to God. Knowing God's will is not as mysterious as we often think it is. We are to look to what God has commanded us, what God has prescribed, and not look for the secret will of God's mind. What God wants you and I to do is in his Bible. That's why he wrote it for us. And we can benefit from that, not just individually, but as a community, as a fellowship. We're seeking God's will together. That's why we talk about the word with one another. We talk about how to apply the word to one another. This is part of the beauty and part of the gift that is God's church. That brings us to the end of today's lesson. Questions about what you've heard today? Yes, Mark. Sorry, I'm not hearing the uh, hearing the microphone. Can someone turn the microphone back on? Go ahead, Mark. I think I hear it now. Hmm. 
Okay, that's a great question. How do we deal with circumstances and what they seem to be communicating to us and understanding God's will? Now, here's the thing about circumstances. They are very difficult to understand in terms of God's will. Because we might look at a circumstance and say, oh, look, God has closed all the doors. This must mean I should not go this direction. Are you sure? It may be that God is saying you should persevere. It could go both ways in many situations. You know, I, I've related, I think, maybe sometimes before in class. There are some missionaries who, just looking at the circumstances, you say, uh, God has not called you to be a missionary. God has not called you to that land. Because, look, you have no success. Now, William Carey is famous missionary to India, great, great missionary. He's famous for not having, not seeing a single convert for decades. I think it was like 20 years that he was in India before he saw his first convert. Just looking at the circumstances, you'd say, uh, I think there's something wrong. God is definitely showing you something, William. You probably shouldn't be here. But then, for whatever reason, after those 20 years, his ministry suddenly became fruitful. And we can say the same thing about other missionaries who seem to have just terrible circumstances in the beginning. And then things went well. So this is not to say that circumstances have nothing to do with how we proceed in life. I mean, Let's face it, we have to just face the opportunities we have before us. If you, let's say you want to become a pastor, you want to serve the Lord, and certain churches just aren't interested in you. You can't say, well, it still might be God's will for me to go to that church. Well, let's face it, you have to act based on your circumstances, and these churches are not giving you the opportunity. So a wise person, someone who's paying attention to the principles of God's word would say, well, I need to act wisely here. I can't go in that direction, so I'm going to go in this direction. It's the same thing with feelings. You know, I, I caution you, I caution us against saying, okay, what impression or what feeling or what sense do I get about a certain thing? Maybe that will indicate God's will. Well, feelings are very subjective. They can, they can be informed by the flesh. They can be informed by the spirit. They're not totally reliable, but they are important. If you want to discern who it is that God wants you to marry, you partly have to pay attention to your feelings. Do you actually like the person? Do you enjoy being around the person? Because if you say to yourself, oh, you know what? This person's really godly, but I just, I just don't really like being with this person. Well, that should tell you something. You should pay attention to your feelings there because if you don't actually like the person, if you're not attracted to the person, then it's not going to be wise for you to marry that person. I mean, it's just basic principle of wisdom. So you, you shouldn't just sit there to yourself and ignore your feelings and just, just go on, go off of a more objective data. Now, sometimes our feelings need adjustment, so you shouldn't necessarily close off that avenue right away, but it is something else to consider. So it's the same thing with circumstances. We are paying attention to opportunities, open doors, closed doors, but that's only part of the picture. Ultimately, we want to bring all our feelings, all our circumstances back to what the word actually says. Now, sometimes I think about this in terms of evangelism. We often say, God, do you want me to talk to this person about you? God, is it the right time? Well, what does God say? God says, make disciples. And God says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Know how to answer each person. So the word tells you, be discerning. And the word tells you, be a witness. So 
always, always then we are, and always in a sense, the right thing to do is to talk to somebody about Christ. That's God's will for you. Now, again, you have to add, attach some discernment to that. You say, oh, I don't know. Because from what I'm seeing right now, this person's in a bad mood. This is not a good time to bring it up. Or because I'm on the job right now, I'm on the work clock. I need to wait until I'm on a break. Or I need to talk to this person after work. Those are things that, that should be part of our discernment. But if we just sit back and wait for a sign or wait for a feeling or wait till the circumstances just seemingly line up perfectly, then a lot of times we actually end up not doing what God called us to do in his word. So somewhat long explanation to, to your question, Mark, but I think those are some of the important principles that we're dealing with in, in, in discerning what is God's will for us. If you have other questions, I think, uh, Danny, I saw your hand. Uh, sorry, we're out of time for today, but please email me your questions or email any other comments you have. And I'll try and answer or respond as best I can. And if it's something that I missed and then I, I feel like I need to bring it next time, then I'll do that. But thank you for being part of the class today. Next time is our review day. It's the end of unit four and it's our last class before we go on a summer break. The review day in the lower class is gonna, is gonna consist of a number of different activities. But in our class, we're again gonna be looking at a video from Answers in Genesis. It has a lot to do with what we looked at over the last nine lessons apologetics focused, and also focus on the idea of one blood, one race, which is a very relevant topic in, in what is a very racially charged, racially conscious culture that we have here in America. So I look forward to watching that video and discussing it with you next time, and I hope you'll be there with me. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it guides us we thank you how you gave us this testimony, this additional testimony of your faithfulness so that we can trust and obey you. God, protect us from unbelief. Please continue to grow us in faith, grow us in holiness. Because if we will trust you, follow you, pray to you, we'll see you work in a wonderful way, even through hard things. We don't want to miss out on that. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for these people. Pray that you continue to bless and help and instruct them today. In Jesus' name, amen.